This is the first episode of Right Stuff with myself, Chris Fitzgerald, and produced by Daniel O'Connor. Uh, in this podcast, we're going to be interviewing writers about writing, and we're really happy to have in this first episode the great Donald Ryan, who is a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Limerick and has just come out with his fifth book, his fourth novel, um, called From a Low and Quiet Sea, and we have a great discussion about that and about writing in general. Uh, we have some other great writers lined up for the next few podcasts, so uh, subscribe and like the podcast. So, Donald, um, those five books in front of you there, they are distinctive, each of them, but there's something connecting them all, it seems to me. Anyway, there are overlapping themes, there are recurring characters. So when you look at the five books, do you see them as one uh, body or do you look at them as five individual books? Well, they're kind of, I mean... They're set in the same place, pretty much, um, for the most part. And the kind of language and lexicon that I draw from is pretty much the same. Um, and I know I'm kind of seen as a, a chronicler of kind of, uh, of, of of rural Ireland, but that's not what I see at all, you mm. know, because each book for me is quite distinct mm. thematically. And um, it's just that the kind of language and landscape of, of North Tip and East Limerick is very immediate and accessible, you know. Mm. So it's, it's, it's kind of my own laziness, really, as a researcher that, that, that keeps me in the same place. And the fact that I love, I love this part of the country, um, mm. and it's, it's, it's just very gratifying for me to be able to weave stories from it. But the stories themselves are kind of universal. Yeah. But they do feel quite distinct to me, yeah. Okay, do you, do you feel in any way kind of confined by that then? Or do you feel like there are limitations if you are seen as that kind of writer of that dialect and that yeah. vernacular? Well, I, I see writers who try to to broaden themselves, you know, their, their, their kind of, their reach a bit too much, you know. Um, I, I think sometimes writers of fiction feel, oh God, I better not be pigeonholed, you know, but mm-hmm. to be honest, it doesn't bother me at all. Mm. Um, you know, you're going to be labelled no matter what you write. Um, and I don't feel any kind of desire to kind of to, to set a, a novel, you know, in a different universe or a different world, because mm. I think almost all of human experience is universal anyway. You know, mm. we're all kind of striving for the same nebulous notion of happiness. You know, we're all kind of involved in the same kind of um, struggles. Yeah. And so, I mean, it doesn't matter where it's at, really. I guess, but in, in this latest novel from A Low and Quiet Sea, you probably have drifted geographically mm. furthest from that locale to yeah. Syria. Did you, how did that come about? Well, um, a few years ago, I, I read a story I wrote called Long Puck to a group of Syrian families in Turles in Tipperary um, who'd settled there. And as I read the story, I was, I was kind of shit myself, to be honest, because <laughs> I hadn't done any kind of assiduous forensic research for the, for the story. And I thought, Jesus, I'm going to get cut out now very badly. But I just got away with it by the skin of my teeth. Um, but I remember afterwards seeing uh, my dad speaking to one of the um, Syrian men who was grandfather um, and it just looks so similar, you know, they're, mm. they're the same shape and size, like it was so, such a kind of powerful experience, you know, and I, I realised like that could have been my dad, you know, who had to shepherd his children and grandchildren out of harm's way, you know, into Jordan, into an internment camp, pretty much, and, you know, onto Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how similar these people were, because we tend to almost unconsciously ascribe blame to refugees sometimes. You think, well, you know, there must be some reason why they've had to leave their home and, and come across the world trying to find safety, you know, and mm. it's, it's almost, I think it's almost a bam to our own conscious, co- consciences. Mm. And it's a very unconscious thing. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I had various experiences like we all had, you know, of, of reading stories, basically, you know, in the press. The mm. character Farouk is based pretty much directly on a, a story I read about a Syrian doctor who spent his life savings on, on a, a journey from, from Syria and, you know, his wife and daughter were drowned in the way. And I mean, you know, I pretty much appropriate his story, but he's travelling towards my heartland, you know. Mm. 
And uh, it was kind of a, I suppose, a little bit of kind of always a frisson and a guilt attached to, to, to kind of almost to, to the stealing of a person's story like that. Yeah, but there's, in all of your writing, I think there's a kind of degree of empathy that comes across from you and you can, mm. you bring the readers into that as well. And do you think that perhaps like an Irish reader would have that empathetic view of, of Farouk's story because of our experience as well? Um, do you think that comes into yeah, it for, from, I think so. for you? That's kind of been lost, I think, yeah. you know, on, yeah. on a lot of people. Yeah. Like I said before, that we, we export nearly all of what we produce here, you know. I mean, this is a land of plenty, mm. but we're never going to be hungry here. And we live in a, a social democracy, you know, as flawed as it is, but we live in a near utopia, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, people complain and complain about how terrible Ireland is. They don't realise how bloody great this place is, mm. you know, and how great it's almost, almost been. How we, you know, I know we struggled for it. But I suppose the, 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 the thing about being a small island nation is we will always be a nation of immigrants and it's, it's just unfortunate and there's a kind of a tide that flows in and out and there's mm. a tide that flows in and out with people's understandings of, of, of how you know of how um, humans operate as well I mean mm. you know like the, the, the idea of having to move thousands of miles from your home just to subsist you know it's a powerful notion and it's, yeah. it's it, we've kind of forgotten about it I think yeah and it's it's very current now. I mean, the mm. direct provision is finally coming into the media a little bit. Yeah, but it's it's still a fairly scandalous situation here. Oh yeah, but I mean, it's it's a system that's been abused, and it's that that, that has led to abuse as well. Mm. You know, it's very flawed. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned research. Um, did you did you start researching the Syrian conflict? Did you go into that? Not, not yeah. more than anybody else, really. You yeah. know, I had an interest in it. You know, so I'd read news reports. That's that's really like it. I was never in Syria. Um, mm. But I, I've met lots of people from the part of the world through my old job and stuff, you know, and yeah. you, you glean things in the way. Yeah. You kind of have to, you know, and these things just, you end up with kind of a composite notion in your head of what a person like that would be like or how it might feel. But you never know. Mm. There's no certainty. Yeah. And how much do you go into um, characters' backgrounds? I mean, do you, do you make plans of characters? Do you, or is it just something you have mentally that you kind of... No, I just kind of get, I, I create an impression myself. Um, mm. I know a lot of writers who do that. It's actually a great thing, you know, and I, and I actually advise people um, when they want to get a real feel for a character, you know, to set up an email address for a character, you know, mm. and, and to email them and have a conversation and to be both people. Mm. Because it seems to me to be, to be the point of fiction, you know, empathy is, is, is kind of fiction's kind of noble point, really, mm. you know, to try to extend it as much as possible. Because, you, but you never know. Um, and so I kind of I kind of retain details about real people, and distill them and put them together to kind of make this fictional character. People you've encountered, people you've read about. Uh, yeah, I mean you'll yeah. pick small things up along the way, you know. And like mm. uh, the idea of verisimilitude is quite, mm. you know, it's it's quite an abstract notion at times, you know. The, the idea of creating something so that it seems real, you know, and, and trying to force your reader into this fictive dream where they'll accept that what you're saying is reality for that time. Just saying it. And for similitude, it doesn't necessarily mean getting it exactly technically right. It mm. means making it feel right. Yeah. And that's, that's often, often enough. I did feel kind of a more onerous obligation, all right, when it came to Syria to get it right and mm. the conflict and, and how it might be to, to have to leave that, that, that place and to be in that place, you know. Because of your own distance from it. Like, I mean, the difference between you coming from Tipperary and not knowing the dialect, dialect so well, do you felt because of that distance with Syria, you had to... The well, because it's so immediate, yeah, because it's, yeah. it's ongoing, because yeah, people yeah. are experiencing now, at, at, in this moment, what Farouk experienced, mm. you know, um, so I said, I, I can't just literally make it up, you know, I have to have, I have to do some bit of work here. Yeah, and 
So other influences then you we're, we're speaking to now in um, your office in the University of Limerick where you're a lecturer in creative writing. Um, I presume that means you're reading an awful lot of student work and mm. you're, do, you, do you try to kind of funnel the, your reading in a way that will or will not influence your writing? Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of a difficult thing um, because Julian Goff said there a few years ago that it takes about 10 years to write out your heroes. Um, and now he was, it was a little bit of hyperbole there, but there's a real, you know, core of truth in it. Um, because you will, when you start writing first, I think it's, it's impossible to avoid just writing in a kind of generic derivative style, you know, just basically copying. Yeah. It's what you have to do. It's, 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 how you, it's how you learn, you know, because you're like a child, really, as a, as a, as a writer starting off. You're like a child learning language, basically, and you're, you're kind of relearning it, and you're trying to learn to use language in a way that's, like, artistic. Like, hmm. You know, it's an awful notion, but that's the way it is. And it takes years and years. But the thing about it is you have to read. There's no other apprenticeship you can serve as a writer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fine to do courses and do classes and to try and steer people in a certain way and to listen, you know, to other people's kind of experiences of it. But to keep language alive and to keep it, you know, in that kind of warm state where it can be used as material, you have to read and read mm. and read and read widely. Yeah, that's the input stage before yeah. the output comes, isn't it? These, these, these simple things that people yeah. actually forget, you know. <laughs> to be a writer, you have to read and write. Yeah. That's all you have to do, read and write. Yeah. But your your role here, then, what do you see that is as being like you talking about influence again? Do you try to influence in a certain way? Do you mm. try to just guide people? Do you try to be a facilitator? What do you see your role as a yeah. as a lecturer in creative writing? I think, but it's a lot actually, um, mm. and it seems that everyone that you encounter um, who wants to be a writer approach writing in a different way. Everyone has kind of a unique sensibility and a unique philosophy when it comes to writing, and what they see you know, as the function of writing, how they see themselves as writers. And you have to reattune yourself to each individual writer, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't just walk into class and say, right, this is how I did it. Mm. This is how it worked for me. This is what you should do, because that's bullshit. You know, it, it might work for some people, but it won't for most people. And so you have to listen really closely to what a person's trying to achieve. And you have to, to just help them as much as you can to strike their note, to kind of find their voice. Because finding your voice, when you do it, it's easy, you know. And I heard a French writer, Olivier Adam, he was a really powerful analogy. He said, like, it's, it's like tuning a radio. You know, it can be really hard to get the right frequency. When you do get the right frequency, you just listen, you know. Do you remember when that came to you, that discovery of that voice that is yeah. that's still going through your work now and, and probably will continue? Well, it took me 10 years. This is why I think courses like the one we have here in UL are so powerful and, and have so much to offer writers because I spent 10 years in this wilderness, you know, of of shame basically you know whenever I wrote I felt ashamed thinking this is just shit you know um, and then when I allowed myself to write in the so called demotic it just started to flow so easily you know when I said okay I can use my dad you know my mm. uncle my my mum my, my sister I can use the people around me I can use their their, their voices their demotic their stories you know there's, there's, there's no shame in this you know whenever I wrote in kind of um, in a a north tip demotic you know I felt this is just Whackery, you know, this is like, this is, this is ridiculous. But, you know, there's, there's no, when I learned to kind of divest myself of shame, I kind of, it was a powerful moment, you know. Mm. That stage of shame, like when you look on, back on that now, do you think that was necessary to reach where you probably was, accepted yeah. it? Um, it was ridiculous, yeah, but probably was necessary, all right, yeah, for sure. Because yeah, you, you went, you've, you've spoken about the amount of rejection that you had before yeah, being yeah. published. And was that through that period as well? Well, well it was the end of it, really, yeah. I had finished um, the thing about December and 
that was a novel that was kind of the result of my divesting myself of the shame of writing in the in vernacular. Um, mm. And that started to get rejected. And, you know, the first few rejections came with embarrassment attached. I was thinking, mm. oh, they think I'm a fucking idiot. That's why they rejected me, you know. <laughs> but then I realised they were mostly out of hand. Mostly the people rejecting me hadn't read, read the novel. You yeah. know, they didn't. Yeah. Or if they had, it was the first few pages and they thought, no, nah, this is crap. Mm. And they don't hurt that much, you know. And that the whole story about the, the kind of the, the numerous rejections, I couldn't believe it because I didn't realise people would be shocked at this. You know, I mm. thought this is par for the course. That if you wanted to get a novel published, you would, it would take years and you'd have to suffer all sorts of um, humiliations and defeats on the way. Yeah. And you do, like, really. I mean, the odd, the odd person you hear of getting, you know, having, like, seven or eight publishers, having a bit more for their first work, but it's rare. Mm. Yeah, It's kind of a slog, you know. But then you came to the stage where you were being published and then getting acclaim from reviews and critics and the public. And do you find it difficult to almost keep that out of your writing as well? And often some of the reviews will, I assume, pick up on things that you might not have picked up on as mm. being having some attributes. And then but yeah. you try to reject that in a way as well. I have this thing that I, that I developed where I don't believe reviews, good or bad. If somebody says, you know, if I get a very bad review and I've gotten a few very bad reviews, I think, fuck them, they're on. <laughs> you know, and then if I get a really good review, I go, oh God, I don't deserve, I don't deserve that, that, that um, approbation. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's not that good. I'm not that good a writer. Right. And they're totally, they're, they're gone from my head completely as I write, you know, because right. the, the writing is the most, most important thing. Mm. You know, if my next book deal was for, like, was for like one book and they were going to make 100 copies, that'd be fine if I knew the book was written well. Mm. Like the one thing I'll never do is let a book be extant that I'm not happy with right. you know and happy again is kind of a nebulous concept um, mm. because you're never quite happy you want to do better all the time but you know I, I want to know that the book that exists is the book is the best book I could have written in that moment right so it's I think somebody said like a song, Paul Weller said that you never finish a song you just abandon it do it's you feel like it actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it is yeah, yeah. so w- like if you were to look yeah. back on these books in front of you now w- would you look back on them with would you edit them if you could or I think actually, you know, when I wrote them, I wrote them in, in the way I wanted to. And I've been very lucky that I've had very hands-off publishers who've let mm. me just do my own thing, you know, which is great. Mm. Um, and so I can feel a kind of measure of pride and satisfaction that those books are what they should be mm. or should have been at the time. And probably I wouldn't write them the same way again. Yeah. Spinning Heart, definitely, I can see it's, it's glaring flaws as a novel, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you care to elaborate on okay. those? Okay, <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I just, I shoehorned in a second subplot, like, towards the end of the book, just because I was thinking, shit, this is just a series of monologues, I need some kind of plot here, you know, so the plot was very contrived and, and you know, pretty much um, just, just, just stuck in there, you know, the, the whole notion of people delivering monologues isn't illuminated, you know, the, the, that idea, you know, there's no real explanation given to the readers as to why these people are saying these things, I mean, and mm. it's, it's a very silent novel, but it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, that could, those could be things that readers might see as attributes as well. Oh, and, absolutely. You know. That's the thing. Like, I mean, to be honest, but I, my, my f- overriding feeling when it comes to Spinning Hearts is that I, is that I got away with it. It sounds like there's some kind of uh, undercurrent of shame still going on there. Oh, though, yeah. Some, yeah I mean, some, like <laughs> imposter syndrome or something, do you feel? Or Spinning that... Hearts stands out for me as the novel that I wouldn't write again if I was, you know, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't do what I did in that book again. Okay. But you, you hear now as, a, again, a lecturer in creative writing at UL, you're, you're in a kind of unique position to look at the current writing scene and the future of Irish writers. Mm. Um, where do you see it going? Is there a mad variety going on? Is there a lot of talent coming up the road? There really is. And, you know, things get 
things get passed over a lot um, and things fall by the wayside a little bit. There's a writer called Sam Call who wrote a book called um, The Abode of Fancy and it was published by Lilliput. You know, and I really think that that book could have been huge. I think, you know, I, I think because it was offered around, I mean, Lilliput could have sold it and, you know, tried to, um, to, to bigger houses in the UK. And writers like, um, it's great to see the likes of Sally, Sally Rooney, you know, um, getting the acclaim she deserves. Um, so where, where do you see that gap occurring between, you know, quality and the public viewing it? I don't know. It's, it's a very hard one to, to, yeah. to, to, to put your finger on, you know. Like, take, take Elska Rahel. She had a novel called Between Dog and Wolf. Again, I thought it was just sublime. It was fantastic and very relevant, you know. And yeah. I really thought this, she's going to be huge, you know. But that happens a lot. Mm. Come across these unbelievable books that just for whatever reason don't get the traction they deserve. Maybe yeah. they will eventually. Is there something about the the current reading public, the the type of reader that's out there now, or the the influence of um, instant media and mm. kind of short bursts of language rather than people having the long attention spans to yeah. even? It's going back around. It's yeah. going back around. Yeah. You know, um, you can see things like just take for example um, the Ricochet Book Club. Mm. You know, having over 15,000 members. Yeah, yeah. There are signs all around that it's, it's, it books on the way back a little bit, but still, but books are still kind of a hard sell. Mm. Um, and then, what about other forms of literature as opposed to novels and short stories? Um, have you, I haven't read any poetry by you, or have you ever ventured into that, or is there something no, coming up? No, I'm not a poet at all. Okay. I've written some poetry, and yeah. I'm thinking of actually um, reading one for Sunday Macellan here in Newell in a few weeks' time, but yeah. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. But they're actually, I mean, on poetry, like just the likes of Colm Keegan and Martin Dyer, um, just these phenomenal poets yeah. in Ireland, you know, like yeah. the, the talent there is just unbelievable. Um, and, you know, and we're, we're pretty good, we're pretty good actually in comparison to other countries at supporting art- artists in Ireland. Yeah. I think, especially literature, there's something, yeah. some, some respect for a writer in Ireland yeah. that doesn't seem to be present in a lot of other countries. It's a I mean, tradition, maybe. Yeah, we do get a lot of lip service, but we do get <laughs> we do get cold, hard um, support as well. You know, yeah. actual we, we do get, you know, there, there is money there for artists. I mean, how it's distributed isn't, isn't is imperfect, of course. Yeah. It's never going to be satisfactory for everybody, but you know, we do we do have kind of a, the knowledge here that that art is important. Yeah, and I think listeners of this podcast will be interested in your process. I, um, you know, from. From an idea like you had for from a low and quiet sea, um, to it being in your hands, is that a long process? Uh, like it seems there's a there's a gap of about a year and a half between your books in general. Um, is that the amount of time it takes from for you to to get it from the first sentence to a published novel? Well, I, I'm not sure actually exactly mm. how long it takes to write a book because I seem to be writing books, you know. Um, almost concomitantly mm. like these voices occur to me and I, I, I kind of tend to go from idea to idea and it's normally the last six months of the of, of the writing that where one takes over and it becomes kind of an intense monomaniacal kind of um, pursuit mm. I mean from Alone Quiet Sea I started to write the very first draft maybe five years ago you know I mean because I'm writing for 20 years pretty much yeah. you know I'm writing all my life really like, yeah. but you know there, there are bits and scraps of things that exist that come back and develop and stuff you know I've never really sat down and started a book at sentence one and written through to right. the end. Does it take a lot of discipline still for you? If you've had all of that experience, do you still have to push yourself to sit down and edit and rewrite? And well, now it's fine because I'm kind of in a job where I have time and space for writing yeah. and it's actually assigned to writing. But, you know, when I was working full time in the civil service, it was nine to midnight, so I had to be really disciplined. You know, I'd say to myself, you have to sit down tonight and write for three hours. Yeah. 
and it really was good, you know, and I was thinking, and, and most nights I'd write between 300 birds and, and, and 700, you know, and I, that's a good day's work as a writer, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, getting the 300 words, it's a paragraph really, but yeah. to get a paragraph to exist that feels right, it feels like an achievement over and over again. Mm. And, and, and that feeling, you know, when it kind of clicks together, is, is worth it. And it that, that kind of drives you to the three hours of labour, because it can be labour. You know? It can be labour, and especially your writing, I've, like concise is a word I often think of when I'm reading your writing, like every sentence has something in it. Like, to what extent do you put yourself at pains to, like, word choice... You know, do you do you really edit down? Do you start with a much bigger draft and then pull out what you're not happy with, or how does that work? Yeah, pretty much. I, you know, I, I can I tend sometimes to overwrite and to let things when I hit the flow, um, to let it flow too much. Cause remember, actually, uh, Kevin Barry gave some powerful advice. He said, um, "Don't mistake fluency for inspiration." Mm-hmm. You know, it's really good, like because you can write three pages of and and read back and go, "These three pages, these three pages could be one paragraph." You know, and you really have to kind of almost atomize it. Mm-hmm. So I do, yeah, I, I often cast things aside and chop mm. and chop until something just kind of feels right and perfectly weighted. And is it the paragraph you're working towards? Kevin Barry is also a massive proponent of the, the tidy paragraph and mm. um, the space that paragraphs provide on a page. Is a paragraph to you a, a kind of goal that you're looking at? Yeah, I guess this obsessive compulsion when it comes to paragraphs, you know, and being kind of of equal length and, you know, and, and, and being equally weighted and, uh, and have... have having, you know, a kind of equal amount of progression and action in, in each paragraph. Probably too much, to be honest, you know. Mm-hmm. And I often find myself dividing chapters and novels and stories up into mathematical kind of units, you mm. know, which is probably not a great, it's probably a bit of slightly anathema to kind of the to, to flow, really, but yeah. it's just something that kind of that happens. Right. And speaking of paragraphs, would you mind reading a paragraph sure. towards the end of Farouk's original story? Yeah. Um, just to give it a bit of background here he's uh, at a moment of desperation and this is one of my favourite paragraphs in the book so if you wouldn't mind Donald yeah, sure and late one evening he walked from the camp to the water's edge and he stood beneath the smirking moon and looked out across the sea and he wondered at the stillness of it as though its breath were held as though it were too ashamed to reveal anything of itself to him to admit to the violence latent in it to the things it held and he stripped himself naked, and he walked out into it. And when he was a good way out, past it seemed, the twin promontories that flanked the camp, the water was still only as far as his chest. And he lifted himself onto the surface of it, and he struck out face down for the empty horizon. And when he was sure he was far beyond his depth, he flipped onto his back and looked at the long, ragged tear of the galaxy, like a wound in the sky, weeping, and he exhaled and let his limbs fall still and he waited for the water to carry him down and fill him and slough his flesh and salt his guilty bones. But the water wouldn't take him. Each time he was immersed he came back up and he tried and tried to drown. He opened his mouth to fill his lungs with water but he couldn't inhale it. His body pushed the flood back out. He kept himself perfectly still but the water bite him and held him at its surface, and when his strength was gone, and he could no longer resist it, the current bore him gently back to shore. Right, thanks very much, Donald. We'll leave it at that. Well. Thanks, Cheers. A Thank you. Cheers. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.